God, thank you that you are holy, uh, that you are unchanging, that we can trust in you. I pray that you would speak powerfully through Michael, through your scripture this morning, God, that you would just grip our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And you may be seated. And while you're doing so, if you will turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, a familiar passage. Uh, One of the dangers of of familiar passages is is we read them and go, yeah, I know that. I've I've read that before, got it, and we... um, It's easy to, at that point in time, kind of just step back and and check out. Um, My encouragement to you this morning is that we would um, seek to hear from God and uh, and to be challenged by Him in that process. Um, How many of you know how how the November elections are going to turn out? You may know for sure. Nobody, really? Why is that? Why don't we know? Why don't we know? We're not God, God, right. What if I told you who was going to win certain elections? Would you know how it was going to turn out? What if I could guarantee candidate X or candidate Y was going to win? Would you know how things were going to turn out in the future? No, do you know how do you know what the ramifications of that would be? If I said candidate X is going to win, I've rigged the ballot box. Does that guarantee you know how things will turn out in the future? No. Why not? Yes, but I know human nature enough to know that it really doesn't matter who we put in office. People are fallible and they're in less control than we think. (laughs) Right? Nevertheless, when elections come around, we... At the very least, maybe there's a little bit of anxiety on the part of some people. We want, we hope, we try to make informed decisions. But nonetheless, when, when candidate X replaces politician Y, we don't know how that's going to go, even if it's the person that we voted for. Back in 1865, a few days after the Civil War ended, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And it really didn't matter whether you were a northerner or a southerner, whether you were conservative or liberal, whether you were white or black, there was a sense of anxiety across the entire nation because people had an idea, at least, of what Lincoln was going to do after the war was over. And there was anxiety on everybody's part of What's the new administration, what's the new mood of Washington going to do? How are they going to treat the South? How are they going to treat people in leadership in the South? Nobody exactly knew. And the ramifications of the new leadership, we still are reaping the fruit of that today. Uh, as there was a, a definite shift in the way things should have been done and the way set the South should have been treated according to Lincoln, that didn't happen. And we still bear the fruits of, 
of, of that today, 100 years, 150 years later, we're still sorting out that mess. Not that Lincoln would have done anything perfectly, but all indications were that he would have done things differently. See, when you go to the ballot box in November, there's no guarantee that the person that you vote for is going to do what you think they're going to do. And so while we certainly should pray about the right person to vote for, our bigger prayer should be for God's mercy on us as a city, county, state, nation. And that justice and righteousness would be realized through His church first and foremost. That should be our first prayer. I bring all that up because we think we have it difficult in our country. We, we punch the ballot box or push the button or check a box. And then we wonder, but at least every two to four years we get to do that again if we feel like we made a mistake, right? See, in the nation of, of Judah, they didn't have that option. Because what was promised to happen was is when the king died, his son would take his place because... God told David that one of your sons was going to sit on the throne forever, and they believed that, and so that was the line of succession. And so the opening words of Isaiah 6 are a, a very ominous tone in one sense in the year of King Uzziah's death. Instant anxiety. What's coming next? We don't know. Uh, Uzziah's father was an idolater brought in lots of foreign idols, the country began to go downhill. Uzziah briefly turned that back a little bit, but in his later reign uh, became prideful. Actually thought that he had the right to take on duties of the priest, went into the temple to offer um, a sacrifice of, of incense. The priest being God at the time said, whoa, wait, and, and rushed in and drug him out, and he had become leprous. And so the end of his reign, he was basically locked up, exiled in his own house, so to speak. And his son was playing the part of king, and so now he's dead, and the reins are off. Is Jotham going to be like his grandfather? Is Jotham going to be like his father? Is he going to be something new? Because we're stuck with him until he dies. And that's the, that's the setting of Isaiah. And then, in the midst of what he's feeling over that, this is what he sees. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And in the midst of already uncertainty, in the midst of anxiety... Isaiah sees this vision of heaven, which I am sure filled him with fear and chaos. Think about what he sees, right? Uh, first of all, the Lord. And we know uh, there's, no, there's no image of anything other than his robe. I don't know if at that point in time Isaiah hit his face or if because of these weird beings 
literally the burning ones or the fiery ones. It's the same word that's to describe the fiery serpents in the wilderness in Numbers. I don't know what they looked like, but it's not a fat, chubby little cherub sitting on a cloud with a harp. Right? It's this, these six-winged creatures that appear to be burning and they're flying and their voice is loud enough that the temple that he sees, the, the foundations are shaking. Now, sometimes after a service, Phil turns the music up to run you all out. Right? That's pretty loud. I don't know that the floor shakes. <laughs> don't try it. We could try And then smoke. Well, whenever there's smoke, what's the, what's the initial what's the initial thought? Fire, panic. Right, that just it's a natural response. Unless you're around a campfire, then it's relaxing. He wasn't around a campfire. This is different. Chaos and fear and anxiety. That's the scene. That's the setting. That's what's going on. But notice how it begins. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a what? On a throne, which means the Lord is what? King. And notice how it ends at the end of verse 5 because there's a response. But at the end of verse 5, he says, For my eyes have seen the King. Very purposefully, we see that even though the king, little K, is dead, the king, capital K, is on the throne. When, whenever we feel uncertainty about temporal leadership, we need to keep in mind that we're not leaderless, that God is sitting on the throne. We need to keep that amount. We need to, to, to walk through that. When there's uncertainty about temporal leadership, God is on the throne. That's the first message of Isaiah chapter 6. Is that there's someone bigger than my circumstances. But then we see his response. Verse 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am destroyed. Some versions say, I am undone. Present tense, at this point in time, I'm assuming that Isaiah has fallen to the ground. We don't know, it doesn't say. But from what he's seen, what he hears, what he smells, what he feels, he doesn't think that there's much hope left. You see, Isaiah has been in the first five chapters preaching judgment to the nation. And now he is ushered into the presence of God and he realizes that I need to be careful how I speak because that same judgment is mine, so to speak. He now gets an opportunity to judge himself. He's one of them. He's one of the people he's been talking to. Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. The sight of God, the holiness of God should necessarily lead us to confession. 
the, the fear and dread that we encounter should lead us to um, recognize that we're not God, His holiness. Notice he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now remember, Isaiah is the one who is prophesying to the nation. He uses his lips, right? But as he, but as he sits in the, in the throne room of God, right, he understands, because he hears these, these angels, these seraphim, whatever those things are, calling back and forth, Oh, those are those are clean lips, and I'm I've got unclean lips. I, I see him. I recognize that I'm I'm not worthy. I'm I'm fragile. But ultimately, our lips are just what the things that we say are just what. What are those? What would Jesus say about the words of our mouth? Yeah, they're just what our heart is like. So in one sense, his confession, while he's talking about because that's who he is, he's a prophet, speaks deeper than that. This this encounter with God leads him to recognize that ultimately at his core, his heart, he's not worthy to stand before God. And there is a confession. It's the outworking of our heart. Because he's seen God's holiness. Now, dictionary definition of holiness is separateness, otherness, someone who is completely different than us, sacred, set apart. I don't know about you, but dictionary definitions don't move my heart very much. I completely, or I think, completely understand what holy means but I'm not sure I understand what the holiness of God means. Because I've never read a dictionary definition and fallen to the ground and said, I'm ruined, I'm undone, I'm destroyed. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but I just want to keep that in mind. Um, There's something else going on here besides Isaiah mentally going, okay, God is holy and I'm not. There's There's an experience. I lost my place again. I hate when I do that. And that's where we should be. I'm still trying to figure out these slides thing. I, don't, I hate slides, but I've been asking people to do slides, so Phil's been doing them, and that makes me nervous. I don't know what's going on, and then I thought, well, I'm going to try it. I don't know if it's any better. We'll learn. We'll practice. Okay. So what do we do? If I've made this confession... He's standing there or sitting there or lying there prostrate to the ground. Uh, he needs something um, more than just a confession. He needs a solution. And that solution is forgiveness. Notice what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is forgiven. Um, 
God is ready and willing to offer forgiveness to a broken heart. He always has been. He always will be. The perfect example of that is Christ going to the cross for us before we were created, before we were born. He knew the need, not only of the people of His time, but He looked forward into the future and saw you and I and our need and our unclean lips and our unclean heart. And He was willing to go to the cross for that. He was willing to do that. I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking if at this point in time I'm, not, I'm Isaiah, I don't want someone touching a hot coal to my lips. <laughs> my thought is that's going to hurt. Right? These are some of the most sensitive parts of your body. Right? There's a whole bunch of nerve endings in there. You like jalapenos? Yeah, some people do. Right? But if, but if, right, you get too much on your lips, I just lean back, let me dribble some jalapeno juice and leave it there for a little bit, right? You get some blisters up. Well, that's not any fun, right? <laughs> now, in one sense, what Christ offers us is a whole lot less painful. In another sense, it's a whole lot more painful because He's not just asking us to sear our lips. He's asking us to die to self, to tell ourselves, to tell our conscience, no, I belong to somebody else. That symbolism of, of the, the searing of the hot coal to the lips should point us, remind us that there's a searing of our hearts that needs to take place, a death to self. If we're going to be like Christ, we need to die to self. We need to experience that, um, that cleansing. Some of you need to experience that this morning. Some of you hold on to sin and guilt and shame. Notice that Isaiah didn't ask to be cleansed. He just confessed and showed that he had a need and God was willing and able and ready to meet that need. Do we believe that? Will we buy into that? Will we confess that we have a need of our Savior and that His Son on the cross paid our debt and will we accept that forgiveness? Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then there's a, a call then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? There's always a call. The call has been going forth from the very beginning because we were made in His image. We were to be image bearers. In the ancient Near East, a king, because the king couldn't be anywhere, would set up a statue of himself in all the places that he ruled saying, I rule this place. My image is here. And so God has placed you, His image, all over this county as a testimony to whoever watches that God rules this place. There's always a call for us to respond to God in obedience. There always has been, there always will be. And it's not just in a missionary sense. It's not just that I have to pack my bags and, and go somewhere. It's also in an obedience sense. The call is to look like Christ. The call is to be obedient. 
So we're willing to follow God at all times, all of His commands, not just the ones to go, but the ones to die to self, the ones to turn our hearts to Him, the one to seek His holiness. Who will go for God? It's not a need. He's just he's looking for willing participants to do what He's asked us to do. And then there's a, a final response by Isaiah. Here am I, send me. He didn't even know where he's going yet. He didn't know what the call is. I mean, he, he has an idea because he's been preaching. He doesn't know. Is it going to be like Jonah and go to the Babylonians as opposed to the Assyrians? Is he going to go back to the northern kingdom or what's left of the northern kingdom at this time? Try to round up those numbskulls? It's going to be the king himself. He doesn't know where he's going. He just knows that he wants to go. I'm willing. I'm available. I'm ready. Send me. Here's the, the crux of the issue. Right? This is, this is what we need to remember. A right understanding of the holiness of God with a right acceptance of the grace of God leads to a right attitude toward the mission of God. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean I am a missionary, though you are. It's the mission of God for you to live a life that Christ has called you to live, a holy and pleasing life where you are. That may mean, some of you, that God is going to call to a new place. But as of right now, at 11 o'clock this morning, right, He's called you here, and some of you will, will go various places this afternoon. I don't think anybody's moving this afternoon, right? There's no moving truck in front of his house, right? And so the mission of God for us as a body and individually is when you walk out the door, it's, it's where your footsteps take you. And if you don't understand the holiness of God or that grace has been offered, you'll miss the mission of God. A right understanding of the holiness of God with a right acceptance of the grace of God leads to a right attitude toward the mission of God. It always has and it always will. It's the way that God works in people's lives. So what's the problem? If I'm, if I'm unable or unwilling to obey God, whether that's in the small things, day-to-day -day life, I get angry, argue with my brother and sister, disobey my parents, bitterness towards a friend, or just a refusal to follow God where He's leading me, one of those pieces is missing. Ultimately, that's where the breakdown is. Either we don't understand the holiness of God and therefore we don't understand the extent of our sin, We don't understand complete forgiveness in Christ. Or we don't know that there actually is a call in our life to be the image of God where we are. Now here's the problem with that. I can read these words a thousand times. Again, I can look up all the words in a dictionary and chances are that's not going to change your heart. So are we stuck? 
Now, I think what, what we are called to do, ultimately, is to seek God's presence. If you don't understand His holiness, or if the extent of your sin is not evident to you, if you don't have a broken heart over your sin, my challenge to you is, you need to seek God. You need to be on your face before Him saying, God, would you show me your holiness because the dictionary will not do it for you. God's other and separate, okay, I got it. Isaiah experienced that. We need to experience that. That won't happen outside of time and prayer before God. That won't happen outside of spending time seeking His presence and asking Him to reveal to us the extent of our brokenness and the extent of His glory. If His Spirit doesn't move in our hearts, I can read these words all day long in this example and all the other ones of Paul on the road to Damascus. Of Matthew at the tax collector's table and at the party at his house that night. Of Zacchaeus in the tree. Of Abraham in a field at night surrounded by stars and not much else. Certainly not any kids. Of Jacob broken and fearful and scared on the edge of a river with news of his brother and 300 men on his way. If there's not an experience with, with God that we seek out, the dictionary will not help us, I don't think. It's only time with God. So I want to remind you again, a right understanding of the holiness of God with a right acceptance of the grace of God leads to a right attitude toward the mission of God. That's what we're after. That's what we're seeking. That's what God is calling us to. That's what His holiness compels us towards. When we say God is holy, the response is, how do I serve this holy God? How do I follow this holy God? That's what we're after. That's what my challenge to you this morning is. Will we, will we seek Him? Or will we say, okay, that was nice and Isaiah's got a place, but, but I'm fine. We, we all need to be ruined before the face of God that we might serve Him. And that's a, that's a hard task. That's harder than someone coming and touching a burning coal to your lips because it means a reorientation of our heart and a trust in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for um, Your Word. Thank You for um, the truth that um, is in it. God, I pray that You would use it to strengthen our hearts. You would challenge us. God, that Your Spirit remind us this week where we are not seeking You and help us to do that um, for Your glory and for the good of Your people. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.